another episode of Lani Living. I'm Alana and today I'm joined by Mariana Coutinho who has a master's in clinical and health psychology and a CV that is packed full of experience surrounding cancer. I'm always amazed at what Mariana, this 20-something woman from Portugal who, who is as beautiful on the inside as she is on the out, has managed to fit into her life. I was lucky enough to begin talking to Mariana a few years ago and then finally met her in person in London about two years ago. And since then, I can say she's become one of my greatest friends with the most awesome accent. However, I haven't got her here um, because she sounds like a female James Bond assassin, but because Mariana has... Yes. <laughs> you do. Um Mariana, tell us how you found out about your EHE. Okay, so first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. You're welcome. And this is my first interview, so I'm really excited to be here. Um, I was diagnosed four years ago, and it all started well, because I had a um, urinary tract infection at the time, and I was prescribed some antibiotics. Yeah. And what happened at the time was my doctor wanted to see how the liver was doing because apparently the antibiotics were very strong. Um, and the liver values in my blood tests were actually uh, higher than the normal range. Wow. Uh, yeah. And it stayed like that for months and months and months and it would never go down. Uh, so eventually I started getting a bit suspicious about it and decided to ask her, what if I did the liver ultrasound just to check if everything is okay with the liver? And I was labeled a hypo hypochondriac <laughs> at the time. <laughs> she told me, oh, it's just a natural inflammation that your body is going through, whatever that means. Oh it's nothing to worry about. Um, you are just being a hypochondriac, no reason to worry, blah, blah, blah. So... I ended up having to visit a private doctor and asking him to, to make a request for me to go for a liver ultrasound. And surprise, surprise, that's when they found out the tumour in my they liver. tumour. Actually, do, the, the amazing, first thing that amazes me about that, for one, you knew. Your body, you kind of suspected and you knew. You didn't have any kind of physical pain, did you, at all, from... No, no symptoms, no symptoms, no just symptoms. the blood tests. So again, so many, so many of us find out by accident, you know, we, who knows how long you're walking around? Because I think what a lot of yeah. people possibly don't realise, um, well, they will tell because you've got a very youthful voice, but um, how old exactly? Do you mind me asking you are? I was 23 at the time this happened. And yes, I've never even imagined having cancer. Uh, much less having cancer at uh, 23 years old. Wow. I was finishing my master's yeah. and I was getting ready to start a, to find a job, start my life basically to to become more independent, to eventually buy a house. Like getting, I was feeling, I was in the last year of my master's degree, <sighs> and this happened. 
I mean, that is just so unfair. I, no cancer's fair. It's not a fair full stop. You know, cancer's shitty. I hate it. I hate it with a passion. And then when I hear of people like you at 23 years old, it's just to, to find out something like this. You're just on the, you know, the cusp, start of your life. You've, you've just done all those years at uni. You're getting somewhere in a career that you were wanting to because um you so you you've got a master's in the clinical and health psychology so what mm-hmm. kind of area were you wanting to go into yes uh, ironically i was uh, during my master's i was studying um the mental impact of chronic illness and then cancer happened <laughs> Oh, that is just crazy. That is absolutely crazy. I can't believe it. Yes, I know. And I was even working with cancer patients at the hospital. Oh, my God. Uh, I was, um, yes, I was leading some interviews with uh, breast cancer survivors and patients. Yeah, actually, Marianne, you know, I was going to go on to that. You were saying, you know, you... But the one thing I didn't realise was that you were already on that track of working within oncology, um when you found out uh it's crazy I mean what I I also probably need to tell people is that you know me and you met um through a mutual friend because you actually do live in Portugal um and that's where you're talking to me from now and I love technology absolutely love technology that we can talk like this and you're not here (laughs) but it's great um yeah, sorry if I'm squealing. I get really excited talking to Marianne because um, she's a really, really amazing friend and um, I absolutely love her to bits. But we met because she has EHE and she is having, she has treatment here in the UK, don't you? So, yeah. But um, yeah, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm going all over the place with uh, where, the things I want to ask you because I'm getting so excited. I'm going to stop there and We'll go back to where you've just found out um, you've, you know, you've just finished this degree. You're already looking at these things in oncology, working with them. And then, boom. Hello, you've got EHE. And what happens? OK, so at this moment, I, I had um, a surgery where they removed the tumour from my liver and it, the biopsy came, came back as uh, EHE. And at the time, I was being seen by a team of doctors who said I was the first case they have come across. And um, they told me, they actually told me they had to Google it because they never heard of it. God, that's Uh, crazy. And also they said it was benign. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I've kind of heard that at one point in my life as well we won't go <laughs> that's a story for another day but yeah so they tell you it's benign and you've got nothing to worry about and obviously nothing. because you've kind of worked within oncology I would imagine that here in benign you kind of thinking I'm fine yeah they told me I was good to go and didn't didn't probably would never have to worry about it again but they also said I needed to have a scan done in three months just to see how the liver was doing post, post-op. And at this time, I, I went for the, liver, for the liver scan and there were two new tumors. Mm-hmm. I go back to them and tell them uh, that in just three months, two new tumors have grown in the liver. They were very surprised, then said that they basically want wanted to repeat the surgery that I had done when they removed the tumour. So they wanted to remove these other two tumours 
And this was the, the time where I finally uh, thought to myself, okay, maybe I should do a little bit more research about this EAG thing and start looking for some other people who probably went through very, something very similar to what I'm going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I found out the, when I found the light at the end of the tunnel, the EAG group on Facebook. And my first post there, actually, it was very funny, not in a good way, but I, I, I got to the group and I remember seeing cancer this, cancer that, chemotherapy, and I was like, oof, maybe I am one of the lucky ones. I got the benign form. <laughs> so my first post is it's it's still there. I'm asking that I'm asking people, hello, I'm Mariana. I was diagnosed with benign EAG. Can you help me? I, the tumors have grown back, and I'm looking for for some uh, some some feedback and for a specialist maybe. But yeah, I was diagnosed with a benign form. Oh and God. this is. This is when I found out that I have cancer. It was not through the doctors. It was through comments on Facebook. So then I start getting a lot of comments from other people saying, no, I'm sorry, you have been, um, you probably misunderstood something. Um, The EAG is always cancerous. EAG is cancer. EAG is malignant. So this was the time when I found out that what I had was actually cancer. And I go, I, and this happened, I think, because the li- literature is very outdated. And as we know, like they say, uh, EAG is usually indolent. And, uh, but we have seen a lot of people dying from EAG and it can turn really yeah. aggressive very quickly. Yeah, so, very. I mean, I, I personally, mine, mine had a, a spout of getting extremely aggressive and you know, it was a worrying time, but that's when I had my first lot of chemo. I'd, I'd had um, radio for pain prior to that, but when it gets aggressive, then it's scary. Um, but for you to find mm-hmm. that out, I, I just, I want to just give you a huge hug. I'm so sorry. I really am. I don't really know who I'm apologising from, but just <laughs> from me as a, another EHE person that you had to find out that way, Mariana, that's just... That's awful. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I was, I was, I, I honestly can't even remember exactly how I felt because I think I, I, I almost automatically entered in uh, like a survival mode and I was mm-hmm. just, I want to, to look for as much uh, information and as much uh, help I can get. And not really, I was not very in touch with my feelings at that time. I think I was like, in, in a bit of a depersonalization, as we say in psychology, like I was not, uh, I just wanted to survive whatever this thing was. And yeah, that's that's when I started reading about the nano knife treatment and reading a lot of testimonials from people who had the um, nano knife done. And this is a treatment where they kill uh, cancerous cells through electric shocks. And apparently it was being very successful among EAG patients who are who have a presentation um yeah I yeah um so I think it, it the nano knife it, um it only works in, under certain conditions doesn't it um I believe because I know that we've we've seen on um the social pages that we we discuss EAG um 
you know, I don't want people to think that they could, you know, oh, we can go in and do things and take things away. And all of a sudden you're better. And it's amazing. Um, you've, you've had, uh, you've had to actually known a knife in twice, haven't you? Yes, I had a procedure done in uh, to, uh, 2018 mm-hmm. and another one in um, November to, uh, 2019. And yes, we there's a criteria, there's a lot of criteria that we have to 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 be to, to match, to, to match yeah. yes, to be eligible for the procedure. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's that then then after reading these testimonials this became my focus. I wanted to, to have this treatment done because uh, the option they were giving me in Portugal was to repeat the surgery that uh, had already been prov- proven to be unsuccessful in my case, like the liver resection. It caused a lot of inflammation. And as our doctor in the in Royal Marston <laughs> told me, yeah. it probably is because of that inflammation that led to new tumors. So at the yes. time... It, he didn't have advised me to to repeat this procedure. Uh, also, it was during this time that I also found out about Dr. Jones at the Royal Marston and tried to get a, an appointment with him. And he confirmed what 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 I was thinking would be the best for me that it, I should probably go for a, a very a non-invasive procedure, basically. Yeah. And this was IRE. So this, as I was saying, this became my focus. And but but IRE, the thing is, IRE, IRE is nano knife. So I I am talking about IRE. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. Sorry, I should have probably explained that as well because I think we just sit there and start talking about these things that we've had years of of reading and medical terms and things that I never would have understood before. But yeah, IRE is also known as nano knife, isn't it? And um, mm-hmm. I believe it's a it's a form of radiotherapy that goes and sort of surrounds the tumor and then sort of radiate blitzes it or something in that way. I don't, I don't know. I do know that obviously you'll have read up about it and you'd know the procedure a little bit more than than I do. But um, I believe it, it's it, it's. Oh gosh, what's the word? You're not cut open. I have, you know what I'm like with my chemo brain. Sometimes I can't think of words. Um, it's is it non-invasive? Is that what I'm looking for? Is yes, non-invasive. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, I'll help you with your English. You help me with words in general <laughs> because I I bloody need the help. I really do. <laughs> so you you the the whole point is now you say you were speaking to the master um now i believe that the reason for that is that they they could not help you in portugal could they uh, yeah so i seek the second opinion at in the uk at the marsden where you are also getting treated yeah. and yes when i came back to portugal with this feedback from a from someone who is considered to be a eag specialist i go back to portugal tell these doctors what I heard in the UK and what is the advice of these specialists. And to my surprise, they were not uh, very receptive to the idea of collaborating with him. I told him, I told the doctor who was seeing me uh, that the doctor, Dr. Jones in the Marsden yeah. was available and more than happy to, to exchange emails with them about my case and 
basically uh, working collaboration and I, I don't don't even know the reason why. That's crazy. <laughs> they, you have done so much yourself to get the treatment that you need. You you've really have worked your ass off just trying to get doctors to speak to doctors. And and I, I don't know. I mean, I've I've heard of other people that have had issues with with doctors that, you know, just don't want to work with other doctors. I have been so fortunate in that my local doctor and Jonesy, uh, Dr. Jones, um, he was more than happy to work. And also with gastro doctors and neuro doctors from my back, I think they've, they've all worked together beautifully. So um, to hear somebody like you and other people that it's just not fair that they get doctors that just, just share, just share. It's all we're saying. Of Nobody's, course. you know, it's not a case of are, uh, my doctor's bag is bigger than your doctor's bag. It's just share your knowledge, help. Yeah, that's it. We are one in one million. So it's not expected that a regular GP or a regular gastroenterologist will know about EEG and how to treat it. Yeah. So, of course, we need collaboration, especially in smaller countries like Portugal, for example, where there is not there there is not a, a specialist in EAG, there isn't, and I go back to them, tell them tell them about it. They refused to to con to contact Dr. Jones, and what they told me were was that um, oh I forgot to mention that I confronted them with the uh, with the opinions I got from other patients. Not the opinions, the comments I saw, yeah. I read in the, the the Facebook group, and also the articles that I was reading about EAG, and I confronted them and asked asked them, so is this cancer or not? And they're like, oh, it's cancer, but it's a low malignant form, so it's not really that serious. And I was all, always feeling like I was being dismissed and. Like, oh, you have the good cancer, you know? You, I, you have I cancer, know. but it's the good God. type. I, do you know, I've, I, I've heard other people say that as well, that they would said, oh, by the way, you've got the good type of cancer. And, they, you know, it's like, so I've got a good type of cancer that can't be cured. I'm probably more than likely going to die of it. Um, and I'm just sat waiting for that moment. Oh, and, and in between, um, you know, great fun. I <laughs> Good exactly, cancer. you could be yeah. you could be considered to be terminal. There are EAG patients who have been considered terminal for twenty years. So yeah, well, I know that are. my original diagnosis was uh, eighteen months to two years, and that was three years ago. So it does happen. But like you say, we we do know of people that are twenty years post. Oh, you're about to die diagnosis and uh, we're still here causing trouble. But to say that it's a good cancer, I think is really offensive. And, um, you know, it, it, we go through so much and to be said something like that, it makes it sound so flippant. And um, mm -hmm. after already being told that it was benign, I would imagine that your faith in um, your health practitioners is zero. Yeah, zero, zero trust in them. I I was feeling lost and then I started searching for another doctor and I also started searching about my rights. So how can I, if I am a red cancer patient, shouldn't I be, shouldn't I have the, 
same opportunities as someone with a more common form of cancer. And I started searching about it and eventually I found out that there are mm-hmm. two European laws that um, support patients in these in cases like mine and also a Portuguese law. And this was the, the law that was used in my situation. Um, and yeah, with all the articles and the laws and everything, I I got my patient kit, let's say. So <laughs> I was ready to to share everything at the first appointment I would have next. And this is when I found another uh, group of doctors and they were actually working in, in a hospital that is considered to be a sarcoma reference in Portugal. And I told them that I, would, I needed to have uh, IRE done in the UK that I had already contacted with the specialist if they could talk with, with the specialist and if they could requ- make a request to the Portuguese NHS for them to cover the costs mm-hmm. in the UK. So Portugal again said no. Yeah. They said that uh, we don't send patients to other countries. That was the answer. Even after I, sh- I, I, t- I shared with them all this information that I knew about and have searched for. And yes, I was uh, going from one doctor to another, looking for more opinions. And eventually I found someone that I could trust and I had my faith restored. Eventually it was only for only a small period of time because he retired. Oh, but But he did his best piece of work before retirement and that is by getting (laughs) you through why on earth were these other doctors refusing to follow the law the law of your land it's it's crazy so that the the actual um the actual law is that if there is no doctor or anything in in portugal to treat you the portuguese government like their version of the nhs has to pay for that treatment for you in another country you'd already done all this work yourself and they still said no until you met this chap and Mm -hmm. so so he managed to get everything through for you did he and that's how you that you finally got treatment yeah as soon as i started talking to him about my clinical story he he said something that I will never forget and will use it anytime I meet the doctor that refuses to help me. <laughs> he said, look, I have to recognize my limitations as a doctor. I have to be humble enough to recognize my limitations as a doctor. And I know that I, I am not capable of helping you. So you need to go abroad. Do you know about this? Do you, do you, do, are you aware of these rights as a patient? And I said, yes, that's exactly the reason why I'm here. <laughs> And I started crying, like, is this real life? Am I getting closer to to getting the treatment I need? And yes, I was. And I did have the the procedure done, like, three weeks after meeting with him. I was in London getting nano knife done. Wow. That's absolutely amazing. And you, um, obviously, this last year with with everything that's been going on, it's made things extremely easy as far as... um, you know continuing um with um scans and clinical appointments and things like that and how how has it how has it hindered you and also how how are you going to continue now with travel as it is um getting over here yeah it's been a challenge actually i was 
I have been trying to, even here in Portugal, I have been trying to get an appointment with an oncologist, but it seems like everything is delayed. And uh, for some reason, I haven't been able to. And yes, in the UK, I, I haven't had a, an appointment in the UK for, I don't know, probably almost two years now. Yeah. Uh, so even with the, um, the scans, I, I usually have my scans done in here in Portugal and send them to the UK. So I, then I have to wait for the feedback from the radiologist who, who, had, who always sees the imaging and who did the procedure, mm -hmm. the two procedures. Good. And yeah, everything is very slow. And the last times I sent the imaging to the UK, I have had to wait like one or two months to get the my results back and the confirmation that everything was stable wow. and yeah it's been been quite quite a a, a challenge uh, yeah <laughs> I, I I can't imagine how much work you've had to do and all the time as well you you know at the base of this you've got cancer you've got cancer you've got the emotional trauma of having cancer you've got the physical trauma of having cancer um the future trauma of having cancer and um you know as much as both me and you we love our mindfulness and our crystals and everything else we you know we get on so well because we have so many things in common mm -hmm. it can only take us so far and when you haven't got that support from the from the people that are supposed to know these things it's yeah. hard it is, and I usually say that I have to do my homework for the doctors. Yeah. I have to do doctor's homework <laughs> because I honestly feel like it. And as I was sharing with you earlier today, um, sometimes I feel like I am demanding too much when I ask a doctor in Portugal to work in collaboration with a, an EAG specialist, for example. I feel like I they get overwhelmed, like they... They don't don't really know. They have never heard about this form of cancer, and they give up on me because it will be too much work. Yeah. So, Do you know? Have you ever found anybody else in Portugal with EAG? Uh, yes, I have already found uh, two two people. One of them I know is she's a doctor, and she actually lives in the same city where I live, and I was told told about her case by other doctors but uh they what they told me is that she really she isn't um, available to talk she she doesn't really like to talk about her story and of course i respect it and and yeah it's it's a shame because we are so rare <laughs> it I would know. be it would be great to speak with someone else who went through the same but I, I think it's very difficult for some people to, to share and they prefer to try and forget about this part of themselves, which I think is difficult. How, how can you forget that you have cancer or that you have cancer? I know, I know. Because... I, I think it's the first thing I think of when I wake up in the morning. I would, <laughs> I'd love a morning that I didn't wake up and think, oh, cancer, you know, it's it's just one of those things. Mm. Um I know possibly because I suppose if you're not as physically debilitated, but you have cancer, it's, it's, I don't know. But do you know, the thing that surprises always about 
you, Mariana, is how much that you put into your own self-care, but also the stuff that you've done for other people. I mean, you, you've you actually um, volunteered at children's oncology, um, working with children, and um, I'm trying to look... Your list, the list of things that I have that you do is amazing. You've worked um, on a psychological intervention programme for breast cancer. You've collaborated... Uh, Centre of Research for Neuropsychology and Cognitive Behaviour. Um, you've also done patient advocate fair trials workshops. Um, th- those that, Now that I do actually just want to have a chat with you about because the fair trials workshop, that is to do with clinical trials, isn't it? And, and um, the age that you're allowed to go into a clinical trial. And obviously having a rare cancer, we we look for clinical trials like the holy grails you know it's most people wouldn't imagine putting their hand up for something that they don't know but us EHEers we see a clinical trial and and we're like children you know wanting to go to pee in a classroom me please next (laughs) so yeah can you tell me some more about the fair trials the workshop Uh, yes this is the fair trials working group uh, which is um, a group that is part of the Accelerate platform, and they are working together. The, um, this this group is working in in order to and this work the Fair Trials um, work group. Uh, they want to make research more inclusive, and this means um, we are fighting to bring awareness to the fact that unfortunately. Uh, young patients, those who are not 18, mm-hmm. so it could be, for example, someone who is five months away from do, from being 18, 18 years old. Yeah. Um, young patients are often exclu- excluded from clinical trials that could uh, that they could benefit from by enrolling in these clinical trials, and they are excluded because of these age criteria which really doesn't have any medical justification. And we are now working with um, the pharma industry and other oncologists and bringing awareness to this and trying to to change the the status quo in this area. Because, as I was saying, there's really no medical justification. And as you were mentioning, for example, if a kid has a, a rare cancer, or a cancer that is usually more prevalent in the adult population, why aren't they included in an um, adult trial, for example? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I understand that, you know, children and medication and things like that, but everything is a, you know, everything is a trial with the drugs and, and cancer. And um, it just surprises me. I did not realise that there was an age limit. So it would mean that, um so say if we found a trial tomorrow that me and you could go into but we had somebody that we were speaking to and like you say is just a few months under 18 and you know she's probably just going to be able to go out and buy a, a legal a legal drink for the first time but no you can't go you can't go on a trial so um it's crazy so what age kind of age group are you looking towards making this yeah, so they, the, this group that I'm now part of, um, we are uh, looking to, one of our priorities is to reduce this age to 12 years old. So 
yeah. anyone from 12 years old and above could yeah. enroll in these in these trials. And yeah, so we can reduce the um, this discrimination because this is a type of discrimination since it has no medical justification. And yeah, I so. suppose it's called covering their own backs, isn't it? Unfortunately, but um, in the life, you know, in the world of trials, I I find that strange. It's a it's a bit of a strange strange thing for me. But I mean, not only this have you actually worked on. You've been working on the um, uh, the rare twenty thirty project, and and I know that. In, you've also um, been a committee member of the Youth Cancer Europe and uh, speaker. And you actually did you actually speak in Parliament then at European Parliament in Brussels? Yes. Yeah, so it it happened in 2019, and I was actually actually talking about um, access to cross border healthcare. So it hits. Uh, he close to home. <laughs> right. So that was you were discussing and telling them exactly what what it took for you to get the treatment you needed in the UK, but mm-hmm. the, the battles and um, and I, I hope that they um, enjoyed listening to you. I really yes. do. I hope. I, I also hope so. Yes, I was telling. I was sharing my story and um, basically trying to show them that. There are, unfortunately, there are still very unjustified obstacles that we have to face if we are unfortunate to to be born in a country where there is uh, limited options for us, uh, rare cancer patients or uh, anyone with a rare disease or a more complex disease. And as this speaking that the European Parliament isn't enough, you're now working with the Rare 2030 project. That's about improving the uh, the lives of rare cancer, isn't it? In Europe, is there how how is that working? Yeah, so this group is uh, I, I joined the Rare Twenty Thirty project as a young young patient who lives with a rare disease, and we are uh, working towards in uh, changing uh, policies around rare diseases in Europe. So I was uh, focusing mainly on access to healthcare. And what could be done to to change the the unfair obstacles that we still face? And one of the things I actually mentioned during my presentation was training. And uh, I think this is very important for doctors to be aware of these laws. For example, the the laws that I mentioned before, and how to basically how to work with a rare patient once you once you meet a rare patient yeah like there is in europe there is um a, a, there are the european reference networks which basically are uh, networks that help physicians connect with specialists in different types of rare diseases from all over europe and but the doctors are not aware of this yeah uh, so, for example, in my case, when I started talking to my doctors about uh, these laws, most of them didn't know about it. They even re- they even denied that these laws exist. And so, yes, I think patients should be more involved uh, in the in policy, uh, poli- in changing policies, and yeah. um, because. I in the whole structure of yeah uh, yeah it's it's um 
I think it's having that voice, isn't it? Because for so for so long, it's just been going along with what is written, and that and that's that's great. But then when you've got a rare rare disease of any type, you're very very limited. I mean, thank God we do have the internet to look at these things. But being able to um, you know know that you've got a place to go that specialises in in rarity in rare diseases, full stop. And um, it, it sounds sounds like a fantastic thing that you're doing. And I know, obviously, as well, you're working with the EHE group. Um, you're working with us here in the UK as well. And, and, you know, me and you have been on Zoom meetings up to now. And we're hoping to try and help uh, collaborate the UK and Europe together. And hoping, you know, out there we may find so many more people that have not been diagnosed yet with EHE in, you know, in... Yes, like it's it's crazy to me to think that there may be a lot of EAG patients that don't have access to Facebook, for example, or even if they have, they don't know how to search for uh, a support group and they are lost with, with no information regards their, their disease and they can't count on the support we, we, are, we have been given. And... Um, it's important to to work on this and bring the information to doctors like we are trying to do in the EAG charity group. Like uh, basically, we sh we are trying to establish networks and relationships with doctors and different hospitals in Europe because that's the way to go if we want to yeah. be more visible. Yeah, I think um, going at the the heart of it as well. You know, it's it's so sad listening to your um you know your experiences of healthcare and what you've had to go to and it's not just in your country it's i think it's it's worldwide if you find a good doctor you find a good doctor and um there is there is a lot more good doctors than there are bad doctors but i think for having a rare rare cancer and then finding a not so good doctor is you've really had a battle on your hand mariana and I know I'm so proud of you. I really am. And to say that you, God, you're so gorgeous and not even 30 yet, it's ridiculous. I mean, but going away now, whereabouts are you with with your cancer right now? Yeah, so at the moment I am considered to be stable. Um, yeah, so there's still one tumour in my liver and... We, we will keep on watching and if it starts growing or if another lesion shows up, we will, I have to eventually have it removed again or start on some kind of treatment, but Who I will knows? just do what, what the, all, the, all the other EAG patients do and just leave. Yeah, I know. I, I think people think we're being corny when we have that as our hashtag but we don't really have many other options do we um and I know when when I asked you I said to you can you oh, please come on one of my podcasts I need I need people to know how amazing you are you know because of because of everything that you've been through and everything that you've actually done as well during this time to fighting for patient advocacy um you know fighting for yourself uh, also putting up with this the the whole idea that you have cancer and the the plans that you made at such a young age um going right now you know i've th this is time now that i've got to rethink things and you 
made something out of what you've made something out of a bag of shit that you were given basically and it really does it's starting to shine like silver more than more than anything for you and I I think um like I say when I asked you to to come on here um I said to you you know if what what we could have a chat about things as well and I knew that I was going to end up talking loads about what you were doing but also we we're going to talk about loneliness with cancer um and loneliness in a rare cancer because as much as you know I, d- I don't know about you but I know that c- loneliness is in every single cancer but with a rare cancer there's so many little people to talk to that understand you it's even lonelier isn't it yes like when I was diagnosed and finally discovered that what I have is cancer I immediately thought of starting treatments like chemotherapy or radiotherapy, whatever. And when, after doing IRE, I was told that one tumor was not fully ablated, so it means that I I still had part of the tumor in my liver. And then Dr. Jones told me, okay, we will just, now we'll just wait and watch. And (laughs) these words were, I was very confused how can you have cancer and let it stay there and not do anything about it and just keep on waiting waiting watching for every three months we will see how it's doing if it's still still stable we will just keep waiting waiting and watching and this was a very difficult concept to to absorb yeah and yeah definitely I know. I, I I remember the first time that I heard that. Oh, we were watching weights, and I remember going, "What? Watching weights? And what? Watching weight?" And that, I thought, you, "You don't wait when you have cancer. You know, it's it's crazy." Yeah. And and it it made it made for me it made me so it made it made it difficult for me to relate to other cancer patients, even in cancer patient groups, because I see people talking about chemotherapy. Um, radiotherapy, sharing their the effects from chemo, and I was there, just like, oh, don't mind me. I'm just here with waiting and watching, with my tumor in the liver, and um, yeah. So it was, it was very. I felt, I definitely felt like I couldn't feel light because I didn't feel as a cancer patient. Yeah. I didn't feel like I had cancer, but I have it, mm-hmm. and. At the same time, I have cancer and I I was facing the same fears and the same anxieties, um, but I haven't gone through any traditional treatments, let's say. So yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and it's it's very hard. I mean, I know I know I I, I have done treatments, um, but even then, it's still very hard to try to explain to people that. Um, you know where they'll they'll sort of say, "Oh, you have the treatment. Has it has it gone?" And just you kind of say, "I'm not having treatment to make it go. It won't mm-hmm. go. I'm me. I'm having treatment to t- to stop it from killing me. From you know from going too far." And they they kind of either don't know what to say say because you're talking you're bringing you're bringing in that talk of of um, death which is not good they do, it's, it's very uncomfortable for people and i totally understand that and we hope that that could be 20 30 years away but 
because you're bringing part of that into the conversation, it's hard for them to understand, you know, we end up becoming extremely dark comics, don't we? And I know <laughs> me and you both can, you know, some of the things that we say to each other, other people would think, that's really sick. You can't, you know, you shouldn't joke about those things, but we kind of have to because, uh, you know, it's so lonely. Other mm-hmm. people just don't understand. And that's why when we meet one of others, we, you know, we call everybody else cancer muggles. And because, yes, just... we celebrate, we celebrate being stable. <laughs> like, being stable is the best news ever. <laughs> and we, that's, that's something that I also, found uh, while connecting with others it gets like you were saying people asking you so is it gone no it's it probably will never be gone and even if it's gone there is a high recurrence uh, yeah there's a pretty much good chance that it's going to come back and in a way my biggest one of my fears that I don't know about you um I will sit there sometimes and think all right well that that tumor is doing this this is doing that blah 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 and then you have this dream and you go, oh, God, can you imagine if I had a scan and they'd all gone? Oh, how amazing would that be? And then my reality EHE voice goes, yeah, but then you've got to go and keep getting scanned, waiting for it to come back, waiting mm-hmm. for it to come back. And I think it's that acceptance of it's pretty much always going to be there. It's in the blood. It's where it's where the blood goes. And it's there. There is no cure for that little that little assassin and um it's lonely like you say but i i just feel that um without you and the others i don't really know what i'd have done to be honest so i you know thank you so much yes same thing with me and i was i am so grateful that that i met met you and all the other oh, we're having a loving too. now. We're having a we're having a little loving now. We're just gonna be like, oh, you're so amazing. You're so special. <laughs> no, it is, and I. But I feel for you as well. I don't. Um, we, I think one of the things that we also learn. I don't know about you. Is I can't stand pity, and I think that's one of the things that we we don't do. We don't do pity. So when mm-hmm. I say I feel for you, I mean I I understand what you must be going through and I really do feel for you um that you're in a country that you're you're not getting the kind of treatment that would would be great so I just I really hope that these governments are going to open their ears going to open their ears going to open their eyes and see that we might be rare as one as our our band will say all the time um but there's a lot of us. There's a lot of us in our rarity, whether it's rare in cancer or rare in other diseases, you know. So have some kind of um, protocol there in place to help deal with us, to help us find treatment and not just flap about. But, but it makes me giggle when you said that the first doctor had to Google it. I remember being in my local hospital when I had sepsis and I was in a private room and the doctor's station was right outside my door and my friend kept coming in saying, oh, there's a really fit young doctor out there. He's uh, but he's just Googling EHE now. And every time I come back in, he keeps saying, oh, my God, I can't believe it's this. And, and this is a this is an actual doctor, you know, in a hospital that's saying this is amazing. I'm going to go home and read some more. 
and it's it's so sad that you know through through our illness that we've got to get them to do that but um I really hope that you keep pushing from your end as well uh, I know you're doing an absolutely amazing job and uh I really hope EHE isn't able to grab a hold of you to stop you from doing what you're doing now Mariana because you are you're, you're my idol anyway that you have this energy that um Yes, I will keep trying and I I try to uh, find a meaning in what has been happening to me and that is that has been my my motivation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean saying why me all the time doesn't help either does it? That's uh it's more I always think why not me? Uh you know, why not me? And let's find let's find something to do with it. You know, it's not for everybody going into things the way that me and you have done, the way you've done through um, with the European Parliament and all the other um, things that you're working on at the moment, which is absolutely amazing. And I think one day we're going to actually see you, uh, you know, you've, you're young enough for me to see you in Parliament one day. And I really <laughs> hope so, because you have a voice that will get things done. I hope so. If I can change the, the if I can change one person's life, even with just a, in a small way, but for the better, my day is already my my job is already done. <laughs> and I couldn't put anything better than that. So I, do you know what? I sadly I'm going to end on that because I think that's such a lovely thing to say, Mariana. You really are an absolute little angel and. Um, I don't mean that in a patronising way. I mean, you really are an angel. And thank you so much for joining me. And we could have gone on for hours and hours. And I really hope that this won't be the last time that you'll be on. And I hope you'll come back and give us an update as well of, of where things stand European-wise. That It would be great to hear from you again. Thank you for coming. I will. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's programme. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Mariana as much as I have. And remember, if you need any uh, information from anything that Mariana's been talking about, or if you've got any points of view or anything, drop me a line and I can pass everything on to Mariana. Or if you just want to have a chat about things, um, leave comments on the website or on the Lani Living website, I should say, or on any of the Lani Living social media pages. If you feel like sharing this podcast, then please do. Uh, the more people, the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, for now, I'm going to say, Namaste, safe, my friends. Bye.